Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Hey, Jim. Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Welcome. Welcome to, I think we're, we're hitting the one third of the way through our first season, episode eight. Right. If I'm doing the math right, uh, it's three times eight, 24. That's, I'm going to say yes. Uh, it could okay. be no. I don't, I don't know. Uh, my, it was my understanding there'd be no math during the podcast. I'm, I, I know we're both fans of uh, the West Wing Weekly podcast and uh, Josh Molina famously miscalled when they were halfway through their entire run. Uh, and he never lived that down. So I want to make sure my math is correct. But I believe uh, we're with the end of this episode, we're one way, one third of the way through. You're going to need someone smarter than me to help you with the math. Well, that's what we have all these other great guests for. And speaking of great guests, know, we, we have a, a great one today. But my goodness, the ones coming up, the list is a little daunting. Uh, we talked to Carissa Hendricks, who's Lucy, Lucy Darling. Darling. Boy, what a fascinating interview that was, too. I mean, just so insightful and smart. It was great. It's just thought about magic in ways that I don't think anyone else has. Uh, same can be said of Tina Leonard, who we love. Uh, we just love. John Carney was fantastic. Uh, we've got Julie Eng coming up real soon. Steve Spill. Our, yeah, Steve Spill was a, 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 was a great conversation. Morgan and West are going to be back to fill in some stuff for us. And, and of, of course, course huh? yes. The one, the only. Dick Cavett. That's the one. Our next two episodes after today will be with Dick Cavett, and we'll, we'll gush then. We won't, won't do now, because our guest today is no less interesting and is one of the first voices uh, and people that I heard and saw when I seriously started studying magic to write the Eli Marks books, and that is David Regal. Mm, he's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, when we um, started Sunday Night Magic, there was a small list of performers that I said to myself, gosh dang it. If we could see David Regal here in Minneapolis and maybe John Carney, I would be so jazzed. And of course, both of them performed at Sunday Night Magic and I missed both shows. So. Yeah, missed good shows both times out. And, and with uh, David Regal, you also missed not only a great uh, lecture, but I, I knew you weren't there and Suzanne had to run do something after the lecture. So I took him to dinner by myself. And yeah, I feel very special that I had uh, I a solid 90 minutes of chatting with him. You know, the reason he's on this episode, he could be on just about any episode we have, but in, in chapter seven of the Ambitious Card, which you'll be reading uh, in this episode, Harry and Eli spend some time packaging up some of the magic tricks that Harry sells online. And uh, in order for us to dig a little deeper into the world of magic trick creation and marketing, first name I thought of was David Regal. Uh, he's a magician, but he's also much, much more. Yeah, really true. Uh, he's uh, written for television series ranging from Rugrats to one of my family's all-time favorites. Everybody loves Raymond. Uh, we spoke to Ray Romano once on the phone together, you and I. If you we remember. did, yes. <laughs> Not in an interview, just in a wild, crazy way. But it was and on our way to an elevator. <laughs> in addition, David has uh, authored several highly regarded books of magic theory and methods. Recently, he served as the head writer and co-executive producer of TV's The Carbonaro Effect, which is a terrific show, folks. If you have not seen it, find it. It's just delightful. Uh, over the course of his six-year tenure with the Carbonaro Effect, he created and collaborated on literally now hundreds of original effects. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on uh, just him talking about what they went through on that show. And maybe we should. Maybe we should. 
I first was introduced to him when I was doing research for The Ambitious Card, and he was doing magic reviews for both Genie Magazine and uh, a monthly DVD video magazine called Real Magic. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was just, his writing was great. His on-camera stuff was very funny. His knowledge of magic was really, really deep, but um, he was just so smart about magic. And his point of view on creating magic products helped shape my understanding of how they would fit into the world of of magic. Uh, In fact, he was for a while there, I always thought of him as my favorite magician and I realized I'd never, ever seen him perform a trick. I'd only heard him talk about tricks. I didn't think it was fair to call him a favorite magician at that point, although he is now because I've seen him do his act several times and it's just fantastic. He's so funny. He's got just a terrific sense of humor. Obviously, if you're writing comedy for television, uh, you probably got a good sense of humor, but sometimes people that can write it can't actually perform it and he can do both, which is pretty amazing. He's fantastic. So over the years, he has uh, produced and marketed a lot of magic effects. But before we got into that in the interview, there was one key question I had for him. All right, let's just dive right in. So do you remember the first magic trick you bought and what that experience was like? Well, it's interesting. Uh, When I was a kid, a few things happened that happened to a lot of people. Uh, I don't know if it's predominantly male uh, or not, but magic sort of crept in uh, when I was a kid. And another thing I had at a very young age, the Jerry Lewis book of magic. I was a huge Jerry Lewis fan and I just loved him. And there was a book, the Jerry Lewis book of magic, which actually was a reprint of another book written by some guy. And I guess the publisher made some deal with Jerry and they put his face on it. If you open up the book, it says like in tiny print, the editors acknowledge that none of this material would exist if not for in the previous <laughs> book. But it was a pretty good book. And it was the standard stuff like the broken match and the handkerchief. But there was some good stuff in there too, like the sugar cube trick where you could transfer the initial, you know, onto their palm, which is a profound trick even today. How old, how old were you at this point? Oh, single digits. Single digits. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's been in your blood for that long. Well, I think that's an interesting thing you, you bring up because I do think it is a bug. And, you know, the pop psychologists among us say, oh, it's because it's children were powerless and, you know, this gives us a feeling of power or whatever, you know, gives you some sense of control because as a child you have no control. Maybe that was the key word from another pop psychologist. I don't know. I mean, we all go to magic conventions and, you know, I have the magic castle. And you learn that magic does appeal to different people in different walks of life. Some people make it their occupation, others don't. But, you know, some of the greatest magicians are amateurs. Marlowe, Ed Marlowe was an amateur magician. So I think it hits people profoundly. And it becomes, in my, it became, in my case, very quickly, a form of therapy. And a very mm. deep therapy, and sometimes for different reasons. And I don't say that in a sort of joking way. It's like uh, I grew up as about half of kids do in an unhappy home. And magic for me was this thing to fall into. And I wasn't very athletic. I was overweight as a child and short. I'm still short. And I was never on any of the teams. But I think uh, magic and athletic uh, endeavors have one thing in common. They uh, take over you. In other words, mentally and physically, you are occupied trying to master magic or trying to uh, master some sort of athletic maneuver, it it just occupies you totally, which in that itself is therapeutic. 
And I love magic for a lot of very solid reasons. Uh, those reasons, plus, of course, I grew up loving to amuse people. And something, you know, you sort of have. I always wanted to amuse people. So, yeah, magic hit me, but it hit me in a substantive way that really hasn't changed since I was single digits. That's great. Can we talk just a little bit about uh, the first magic trick you created and sold? Now, let's move out of your uh, single well, digits into something else. I will take the word sold off, off of that because... Okay. Um, I have sold tricks, and I do it because I really do enjoy the process of trying to improve something and putting it out there. And very often that process costs me money. And, you know, I'm married, I have kids, but my kids are young adults now. And so I always wanted to get that money back. And so I have put things on the market, and I would say some broke even, some made a little money, and a few did very well. And coincidentally, it would happen in a year where some writing, I'm a TV writer in real life, where a writing gig fell through and I go, oh, look, this thing just made money. And so I never, ever take that for granted because it's rescued me yeah. on more than one occasion. So why do I take selling off of it? Because I love the stuff I market and I don't, I'm not you know, shy about marketing it, but I never approach it from a place of that. I'm always trying to you know, scratch an itch. For me, I like the process. I love it more than uh, my enjoyment of performing. So it's scratching an itch for me. And uh, coming up with something new, first of all, a lot of the times you think it's new, but it isn't new. <laughs> so that's part of the process. Other times you think you have a good idea and it fails. That's part of the process. And after a while, you start to learn things. And I sort of have to admit, I like the failure. I like working on something where I was, yep, that's not going to work. I wasted this many hours or this much money or this combination of the two, but I enjoy it. So that's a weird thing to say. I enjoy it even when it fails, but I do because I feel it gives me something to try for again. I like having something on deck to try for. I like having that thing that has not been uh, solved sitting over there. If I do solve it later, I like that too. So look, I've worked on this all this time and now I've solved it. But even if I don't solve it, there's something I like about the fact that I haven't solved it. So I'm just being honest with you. Yeah. But at first you get very upset with failure and then you realize, oh, it's very often, so often part of the process, it is the process. Creating magic for me is never about selling magic. And frankly, I don't think it should be. I think it could be, but I don't think it should be. And, you know, I don't want that to be my life. And so far, it hasn't been my life. And people say, you put out so much. I go, well, I put out things that I feel should exist. And some people may agree and other people may disagree. But that's, for me, why, why I do it. You said you love the process even when you're dealing with failure. But are there any parts of the process that you don't like, that you don't look forward to, or that you even hate? Uh, I don't like getting uh, knocked off. And imagine it happens a great deal. And that's just a sinking feeling. And if, you, if it's a successful item that you're marketing or something that you published in a book, you hate to see someone else's name on it. Or in the case of a knockoff, sometimes it still have my name on it. I could tell from the packaging it was a knockoff. Oh, man, man, it's rough. It's just uh, tough for every reason you can imagine. And so you're talking about piracy here, that people are, yeah, people are literally, yeah. I guess I didn't realize, I, I mean, I knew that that happened, but it, to, to uh, 
to an extent that uh, does it deter you from creating magic? Knowing that it does for a while, it puts a sort of a stink on it. And I'll give you an example. I came out of a little clear box that switched cards. It'd be a folded card, and it switched a card, which you think would be impossible because uh, it's clear. And I came out with it. It did well, but it was knocked off within 90 days. Wow. 90 days. And that was unfortunate because it was very popular. I mean, super popular. And the fact that it was knocked off that quickly really did make a difference. Most, it was one of the few items that made me actual money. I mean, you look at me and go, wow, that, that made me actual money. But the knockoffs also did extraordinarily well. And I'm not talking about other people who as time went by came out with another clear box. That's magic. And that's, you know, someone comes up with a smaller one or a different one or that does it a little differently. That's magic. And, you know, I'm not complaining about that at all. That's just how that works. But I'm, I'm saying, it would say David Regal's Clarity Box. It's like, oh, man. And it wouldn't be David Regal's Clarity Box. So, yeah, that was rough. And other times it uh, has nothing to do with money. You know, and in magic, most of what we do, and by we, I mean anyone that's trying to, you know, contribute. And sometimes it's just a little thing. And all you get for that little thing is the fact that, hey, you came up with that. And that's your entire payment. And in magic, sometimes those bragging rights are significant. Like, I love giving credit to somebody. Like, I, you know, as magicians, sometimes we teach magic to other magicians. And they'll hire you to do a magic lecture. And you do that lecture and you teach people the tricks. And I love, I'm not kidding, I love giving credit to other people. And I say, now this part, this is Wesley James uh, who came up with this. And a lot of people use it with the ambitious card, but I use it here. But it's Wesley's, you know, idea. I love that. And I'm sure people like Wes or other people that come up with these little their own special way of controlling a card or palming a card or a switching a coin. All these people uh, get nothing, really zero, except for, you know, that, that little spotlight that shines on you when someone goes, oh, this, this, this person came up with that. And of course, when you see another magician doing it, it sort of enters the vernacular. That's payment you get as well. So yeah, in magic, credit's very important for all those reasons I just mentioned. You know, I first noticed you giving credit like that when I was either reading your reviews in Genie or, or watching your review in Real Magic. And I'm wondering, doing all those reviews, did, did that have any impact on, on how you create magic or having created magic, does that make you a better reviewer? It's hard to review and do a decent job of it. It's not an easy job for a lot of reasons. But I like reviewing because it keeps me engaged in what's current to some degree. It used to be the magazines had greater sway and people were very excited about sending items to a magazine for review. But I think those days are gone because the internet now has more sway than a publication. So uh, it isn't like I can count on getting all the greatest stuff and review it. So very often I'll pay for something to review. Or I'll pay for something just to see what the secret is. And, you know, what's fascinating is it runs the gamut. You know, you'll have somebody come out with, you know, $150 gizmo that's very intricate and had been machined. And I look at it and go, how do they even have this thing made? Because it's such a little gizmo. But it'll be something that breaks, and it's not really that practical, and it'll work 50% of the time. And then someone come, 
out with something for 15 bucks, which still happens almost never. Like Silk through Telephone came out a couple of years ago. I think it cost $15 with the silk. So you got the silk and the gimmick. And that's, I think you saw people do this online. Look it up if you have. Fantastic piece of magic. You borrow someone's phone, you put the handkerchief up against the phone, and you pull it right through the center of their phone, and their phone is unharmed. Unbelievable, fantastic magic, $15. So that dichotomy is one of the most fascinating things in all of magic, reviewing magic, of course, but in all of magic. And when you review, I think it helps teach you that dichotomy if you haven't learned it up to that point. Nice. Do you, uh, if, if there was somebody listening that might be thinking, gosh, you know, I do have some magic ideas uh, and I would like to, do you have any advice for someone thinking about creating or marketing uh, their own trick? Well, don't go into it expecting to make money. Um, there's a small magic universe. And while it is possible to make some money with some effect that, you know, just everyone loves and everyone in the world seems to want to have it, that almost never happens. And generally, it's a lot of effort for very little financial return. Because if you think about it, the, the people that are making lots of money, I mean, big money in magic, are the people, uh, you know, the jobbers or the big stores that have thousands of items? Because then, think about it: you have, you have thousands of opportunities to realize an amount of profit. But if you're a creator, you're not going to come out with thousands of things. You'll have a few things, maybe a dozen things, and looking toward it as a livelihood, you could do. And you know, Godspeed if you want to do that. It's possible, but you shouldn't go into it that way, certainly. If you want to try to do it, trust me, there are people that will help you. Because if you have something that looks great, and you put it on video and you send it to one of these big magic stores, they will want to produce it. And they'll say, here's the deal we'll give you. You know, uh, We'll pay to make it, and we'll give you X amount of the retail price. And you'll either say yes, or you'll say no. And obviously, if you want to take the financial risk and think you have the wherewithal to get this thing made, then you can make a bigger piece of that, of that pie, retail price pie, because then you'll be selling a completed thing to a store. But trust me, even if you made it, you still have to package it. Then you've got to do an ad for it. And now it has to be a fairly decent video ads. And my ads are rudimentary compared to what I see out there. And if I had the ability to make better ads, I would. So there's all these components now, especially in this video age, that go into putting something on the market. First, it has to be good. Well, actually, that's a lie because a lot of junk <laughs> is sold. I'm a reviewer. I'm the first person to tell you. It should be good. If you want to go into it, have something good. Don't try and you know swindle the magic community. And you, by the way, you can get away with that more than once before they catch on because it's possible to do something that looks good that's actually bad but have something good and then uh yeah you'll have no difficulty finding someone that wants to help you everyone wants to help you because everyone's looking for the next new thing it's kind of ugly the magic business since you you really want to talk about it and i realize uh, you do the magic business is an ugly one it's like opening a movie 
It's like, oh, you do have a great first weekend, a pretty good second weekend. And after a month, okay, everyone wants, is done with it. Start working version two or the next thing. Right. Yeah. Very few things, very few items have that shelf life. Despite all that, you still seem to be very excited about the idea of creating products and marketing products. And I love, uh, you know, I think when you say, how do you come up with things? I think basically we all frequently start from the same place. Well, there's an A and a B. There's inspiration. Oh, you're taking a shower and you think, bing, something comes to you. Great. That happens to all of us once in a while. But generally, much more common, we look at an effect that someone else is doing or has been done. And we like everything but one stinky part. And we go, boy, except for this one stinky part, this is really pretty good. And so you start to worry that stinky part. You either get rid of it or you don't. But if you get rid of it, I, I love getting rid of that stinky part. There's a trick I put on the market called the gold standard. And this plot existed already. So I'm a little crazy, I have to admit. What plot existed probably? Well, you're wearing a tie pin or a lapel pin, or it's a pocket pin, but you have a pin. You can go anywhere. You know, the kind that goes into the clothing, the thing goes on the back, it's there. Whether it's a tie clip on your lapel, or it's on your jacket or your tie or whatever it is. It's just there. And at some point, you're doing a trick with a signed card. And, you know, the card trick where cards go to an impossible location, it goes under your tie clip. It's under it. And you can pull on the card and your tie goes like this, you know, or on your lapel or on your jacket. And you have to undo it. You could spin it on this thing and you take it out and it's done. And the way this trick, I own two versions of it because I love it. Sometimes it's under a thumbtack, sometimes it's under a tie pin, whatever. But in the previous versions, there was never a hole in the card because it, it was an illusion that it was under the tie. It was an illusion. So you take it out and it hide the fact, I guess, there was never a hole or you hope they didn't notice. I remember even in the instructions of one of these that I bought and said, there probably should be a hole in the card, but there isn't. No. And so I was like, what? And I think they suggested you could just put holes in every card and hide the fact there's a hole, which doesn't seem like a great solution. <laughs> so I came up with over a period of years with a design where the hole would get put in the card and it would do the same trick. So the trick was the same. The only difference was... Well, this will put a hole in the car. And so I'd write to these jewelers companies and I actually had these made. Same trick, but it put a hole in the car. And I got to tell you though, I do this at the Magic Castle. And the first time, first of all, for magicians, I would always mention, look, there's a hole, because I was so proud of myself. <laughs> but you probably shouldn't say that. So I'd stop saying that. And I'm doing it for a lay person at the Magic Castle because people don't realize that. The Magic Castle, you're generally performing for lay people that come to see a magic show. I do the trick. The lay person looks at the card, sees it, and he says, there's a freaking hole in the card to the entire audience. I go, okay, those labors were not in vain. But this truly was a gold-plated piece of jewelry, you know, made to do this trick. And I would say that's one of the effects I just broke even because it cost me so much. I had a jeweler make it. So anyhow, uh, yeah, you do it to do it. But when, when the layperson goes, there's a freaking hole in it. You know, that's when, that, that's the payoff. 
Yeah, that's a great payoff. That's uh, certainly uh, worth the effort. Hole in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I guess the thing that still kind of sticks out for me is the piracy deal. Yeah. Who knew? First of all, why? What? You know, I guess because there's money in it. That's but, the only reason. Yes. Yeah. But second of all, it, it's not like I, I, I can't imagine that it's like, you know, huge amounts of money. So why wouldn't you use your powers for good in some way rather than uh, just ripping a guy off? Well, you'd have to define where huge amounts of money. Um, I guess. But yeah, it, I mean, if you just the, the magic community is not that big. And if even if you sold one to absolutely everybody in the magic community at whatever, I suppose if it was, as he was talking about, something that a jeweler made, maybe it's a pretty expensive piece of apparatus. Mm-hmm. But it, when he talks about at 15 bucks, you can get this thing that pulls a silk through a phone for 15 bucks. Even if you sold one to everybody, it's not like you know, you're going to retire. You know, I know it, the, the, there's a similar problem in book publishing where books get they get stolen and put on sites. People can download them for free. Uh, same thing with audiobooks. Um, and I guess there's just uh, there's always going to be someone out there who wants to take the easy way and uh, and take someone else's work and just run with it. So he's spoken about it in other venues uh, much more vehemently than he spoke with us about it. So it's just, just shocking to me that there isn't some sort of legal FBI, ATF, I don't, some, one of the people with initials for why they don't jump in and just say, hey, you know what? Come with us. You're going to spend some time behind bars now. Uh, I don't know if it's a high priority. It might be because it's uh, often done internationally. So they're harder to grab. Are you saying Interpol doesn't care about magic? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying it might not be a priority. I'm sure there's a list somewhere in a drawer. I'm making a call. Okay, I'll let you talk to your people in Interpol. Exactly. Uh, but I'm sure you've had more experience buying magic than I have. Do you Do you remember the first trick you ever bought? Yeah, I can remember the first trick I ever, one of the first tricks I ever bought uh, and how disappointed I was in it once you learned, you know, what was going to happen. I, I have a, always have had a bent for uh, spooky magic and there was a, uh, a little plastic casket with uh, like a plastic version of King Tut, the mummy. I had that same thing. Yeah. And it would kind of flip over. Mm -hmm. And I was so disappointed in it. I remember I was at my grandparents' house uh, when I kind of opened it up and was figuring it all out. And once I realized what it was, I was just so heartbroken that, that, and I've never, you know, I've always remembered that. I, I couldn't have been more than nine or 10 at the time, but I just remember being completely devastated in how stupid it was mm-hmm. and how, oh my gosh, in the hands of the guy at the magic store, this was a miracle. Yep. And now it's just stupid. Yeah. Not uncommon reaction. Yeah. Um, I didn't really get into magic. I was much, much older, though. I did a couple of tricks that I had as a kid, but I I do remember my first experience walking to our local magic store, Eagle Magic, which at that time was downtown on Portland Avenue in the Sexton building. Uh, and it must have been 1976 because I was making a movie that required a newspaper headline, a uh, fake headline. And I'd heard that you could get that done at Eagle Magic. And I went in and I met uh, Larry, 
who is still at Eagle Magic. Uh, and he ended up making uh, a number of headlines for me over the years. Uh, my other big experience with him was we were doing a corporate show. I don't think you were on that show, but our good friend Arden James was one of the talents. And um, they wanted to use Arden and to introduce the uh, next year's destination. So it must have been some sort of sales event. And our good friend Beth Gilliland was one of the talents. And Arden is primarily a silent magician. So it didn't seem fair to ask him to all of a sudden be a talking magician. So we wrote a routine where he was just demonstrating, showing things to Beth. And from the things he did, she was able to guess what the destination was. So he had a book and he opened it up and flames shot out of it. She's okay, we're going someplace warm. So with the list of things I was trying to get across, I walked into the Eagle Magic and said, here's what we're trying to do. Arden's going to do it. Uh, Larry knew Arden said, okay, there's nothing I'm going to give you that Arden can't do. And he just went down the list and said, well, this would be a good way to say that. That'd be a good way to say that. And, you know, $150, $200 later, I walked out of there with all the props Arden needed to to uh, express to Beth what the destination was for the next year. Uh, and was, I think Larry had a lot of fun putting it together because I don't think he got that kind of request very often. Uh, and super knowledgeable guy. Uh, maybe, uh, I can't absolutely verify this, but it might be the oldest continuing magic shop in yeah. all of America. I think, I think it might be. Yeah. It might be. It's moved a couple times, but it's still up and running. All right. So speaking of magic shops. Hey, we're uh, back. We're, we're back, back, everybody. Before we jump into chapter seven, which uh, takes place, I think, entirely within the magic shop, uh, let's just quickly recap what's happened in chapter six. Eli's just wrapped up being questioned about Gray's murder by his ex-wife's new husband, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton. And we meet that ex-wife, Deirdre, for the first time. Let's dive right in. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 7. A murder suspect, Harry said again, this time more indignantly than the first. Uh, the term they used was person of interest, but I think it comes down to the same thing. Bunch of imbeciles, Harry mumbled as he pushed another length of rope and a printed receipt into a box and slid it across the work table to me. We were in the back room of the magic shop, filling internet orders for one of Harry's most popular and best-selling illusions, a self-tying rope trick. I taped the box shut and added the address and return address labels and then tossed it in a bin that I'd take to the post office later. It was mindless work, but for some reason, I really enjoyed it. I'd loved doing it as a kid when Harry gave me five cents per order while he regaled me with stories of the magicians he'd worked with in his career. And I still enjoyed doing it as an adult when just as often it was now me giving him an account of some recent stage triumph. Or sometimes we'd work for hours and barely say ten words. It was still fun. We packaged a few more of the self-tying ropes and were moving on to his equally popular screaming dice when we heard the bell ring on the other side of the wall in the shop. Neither one of us made a move to get up. It's your turn, I said finally, as I added labels to a sealed box. Like hell it is he snapped back. I got the last three, and two of those times it was that terrible student of yours. Pete's not all that bad. He's a wretched, graceless magician. If he were a dog, I'd have him put down to take me out of my misery. I'll go, I said, getting up. 
we really can only handle one murder suspect in the family at a time. I parted the red velour curtain that separated the back room from the store and stepped into the shop, surprised to see Clive Albans, the British writer I'd met in the caves. Although Halloween had come and gone, you wouldn't know it by looking at Clive. Flared bell-bottom pants and a silk shirt were covered by a long, flowing raincoat, a London fog knockoff in a deep violet hue. It made me think of Willy Wonka. Hello. Ah, yes, brilliant, he said, looking up from one of the glass display cases he had been peering into. Eli, isn't it? Yes, I said. Clive? Spot on, he said. Impressive memory. You must teach me your method sometime. No trick, really. You say your name, I remember it. That's really all there is to it. Clever bit, that. Well done. Yes. There was a pause just this side of pregnant. So how can I help you, Clive? Yes, well, uh, the interview with yourself and your uncle, if he's so inclined. He took a few steps toward me, removing his rich red leather gloves and placing them on the display case. I believe I mentioned the article I'm doing for the London Times on charlatan psychics. Yes, I said you did. Your uncle, being as renowned as he is in the field, would be the ideal candidate. Nothing extensive, mind you, just a few juicy quotes. His thoughts on the current state of the field, that sort of thing. He had taken out his notebook and flipped it open to a blank page. He pulled out a pen from his inside breast pocket and gave it a click, then made a quick jot on the paper to ensure its viability. Let me check and see if Harry is interested in taking part, I said, as I turned back toward the red curtain. Not interested, came Harry's reply through the thick fabric before I had walked two feet. I turned back to Clive. I'm afraid that my uncle isn't currently available for an interview, I said. Perhaps another time. Fat chance, was Harry's muffled response. Clive was certainly a pro, because Harry's curt reaction didn't phase him for a second. Well, perhaps I could get you to talk on the record, he said, turning his attention toward me. What has your experience been with uh, charlatan psychics? I saw how you dealt with the late Mr. Gray last evening. Terrible business, that, by the way, he added, clucking his tongue sympathetically. Grisly stuff. Anyway, is that how you usually deal with them? Give them a bit of their own medicine, a bit of the hair of the dog, that sort of thing? He lowered his tall frame onto one of the stools in front of the display case, not so subtly signaling that we were going to have a conversation of some duration. I sat on the other stool. Well, in that particular instance, I said, I was dealing with a performer who was doing, as I mentioned at the time, a very traditional mentalist routine, which is in many ways part and parcel with what magicians do in their acts. With other types of psychics, palm readers, astrologers, healers, spoon benders, and that sort, you have to adjust your techniques to uncover their methods. I was feeling tongue-tied and remembered how much I hated being interviewed. Excellent, he said, as he made some indecipherable notes about my blathering on his pad. Now then, he said. He leaned back as far as he could on the stool and bit down thoughtfully on the tip of his pen. 
Back in the day of Houdini, it was not uncommon for highly educated people to be completely taken in by paranormal charlatans. Even Arthur Conan Doyle himself was fooled by two teenage girls and their fake fairy photos, he said, hitting the alliteration hard as he spoke. Do you think people are, as a rule, more sophisticated today? Well... Yes, I'd like to think that people are better educated and less susceptible to sham. I was cut off by Harry, who burst through the red curtain like a freight train. He had his head down, a man on a mission. He didn't look in our direction as he spoke. Nonsense! People never change. They're the same today as they've always been, he declared as he ducked behind a counter and stooped down to open a drawer. I could hear him digging through the drawer as he spoke, his disembodied voice bellowing up from behind the display case. They aren't any more sophisticated, and neither, for that matter, are the psychics who consistently fool them. And it's the very fact that they think they're more sophisticated that gets them into trouble in the first place. Take it from me. People are idiots. He popped up from behind the counter, holding three boxes of screaming dice, looked at the boxes, glanced at us for a split second, and then disappeared back behind the red curtain. I suppressed a smile, because I knew for a fact that there were four cases of screaming dice in the back room sitting on the work table. I looked back at Clive, who sat frozen for a moment. Then he jerked into action and began to furiously jot down what Harry had just said. Excellent, he murmured as he scribbled. So what spurred the idea for this article, I asked while he wrote, hoping to turn his attention away from me. Is it just an assignment, or is there a more personal reason for your interest? He stopped writing and looked up at me. I couldn't read the expression on his face, and a moment later, I didn't have to, as his countenance had returned to his earlier bright, smiling appearance. Oh, it's a freelance piece, to be sure, he said offhandedly. I've had a couple run-ins with psychics back in London, in Belgrade Square, but nothing to speak of. Just always interested in the topic and thought there might be a story in it. So the article isn't what brought you to the U.S.? I asked. Oh, no, I've been here for years, on and off. I'm afraid I'm a bit of a whirly-gig. I file reports from all over. It suits me. He looked back at his notes and then spoke again before I could interject another question. So, what is it about magicians and psychics? Harry Houdini railed against them in his time, and your uncle's work is, in a word, legendary. Why the antipathy? I mean, aren't you all basically the same when it comes right down to it? You're both just fooling people, isn't that so? Well, not exactly, I said. The difference is... The difference is, Harry said, once again bursting out of the back room that a magician stands in front of an audience and tells them, in effect, everything I'm about to do is a lie. We are, at our core, honest about our contract with the audience. The psychic, on the other hand, stands in front of the crowd and says, everything I'm about to tell you is the truth. Then he proceeds to lie to them. It's as different as night and day. As soon as he had finished speaking, Harry realized that in his enthusiasm he hadn't established a sufficient ruse for coming out of the back room. He looked around the immediate area. He finally spotted a paper clip on a nearby counter. There it is, he said with fake relief as he picked it up 
and pushed his way back through the red curtain. I looked at Clive, who was smiling as he scribbled feverishly. He finished, adding a flourish to the last word, and looked up at me again. So, Eli, have you ever experienced a paranormal event personally, an occurrence you couldn't explain away with your traditional methods? I looked over at the back room, expecting another dramatic, exasperated entrance from Harry, but the red curtain remained strangely motionless. I waited a couple of seconds and then turned back to Clive. Well, I certainly have experienced odd coincidences, I said finally. I think everyone has at some point. Like the phone ringing, and you know who it is before you pick it up, he offered. Well, that's not a paranormal experience, I said. That's just caller ID. Clive laughed politely, which in my world is more painful than no laugh at all. But seriously, he continued, you must have had some experiences that you, as a person and as a magician, cannot adequately explain. I'm sure I have, I said, but I'm a skeptic. I'm not a debunker. I don't make the presumption that every supernatural occurrence has been faked in some way. As a skeptic, I'm more inclined to look for a natural explanation before leaping to a supernatural conclusion. Would you like to encounter a true paranormal experience? Sure, I said. Who wouldn't? It would be cool. But that desire doesn't cloud the part of my brain that first looks for the rational explanation. How about you? I asked, turning it back on him. Have you ever experienced something you couldn't explain? He smiled and shook his head. I've yet to find anything that has completely mystified me, with the exception of your electoral college. But hope springs eternal, doesn't it? That seemed to conclude the formal part of the interview. But at his request, I spent the next few minutes giving Clive a tour of the shop. In addition to demonstrating some of the most popular illusions, I also took care to point out a few of the classic effects that Harry had created. I also indicated the photos of Harry with celebrities that have been taken over the years. Clive seemed genuinely interested in everything he saw, and he spent a long time examining the old frame photos that hung on the walls. Magic is fascinating, isn't it? he said. Like that trick you did last night. What was it called? The returning card? The ambitious card, I corrected. Yes, that's a classic routine with literally hundreds of variations. I stepped behind a counter, picked up a deck that was lying there, and did a quick version of the routine with one card continually returning to the top of the deck. Amazing, he said, studying my actions closely. Simply amazing. How long would it take a person to learn that trick? I thought this over. Well, in its simplest form, it still requires a couple of slights that do take a bit of practice, I explained. I don't think this is the ideal trick for a beginner. And what trick would be ideal for a beginner? He asked, leaning down to peer through the glass top on the cabinet. I scanned all the display cases quickly, finally settling on the perfect effect for him. I think this is what you're describing. It's a little coin trick called scotch and soda. Oh, I like it already, he said. Sounds like something that could come in handy with my mates in a pub. Absolutely. This one works anywhere at any time, I said, as I pulled a small sealed scotch and soda package off its place in the display case and opened it up. 
It involves a little transposition with a couple of coins, I explained, as I demonstrated the trick for him. You see here we have an American half dollar and a Mexican centavo. As you can see, the half dollar is just a tad larger than the centavo. I placed the larger coin on top of the smaller one and gestured for Clive to open his hand. I placed the two coins on his open palm. Now, close your hand and without opening it, see if you can reach in with your other fingers and find the smaller coin. Clive did as instructed, looking up at the ceiling with great concentration as he felt inside his closed hand for the smaller coin. Got it, he said. Great, let's see it. He pulled the coin out and his jaw dropped when he realized that instead of holding the centavo, he was now holding a quarter that has appeared out of nowhere. He opened his closed fist to reveal the half dollar, but the centavo had completely vanished. Bloody hell, he said, examining both coins closely. He insisted that I perform it for him again, and then one more time after that, howling with delight each time he was left with the half dollar and the quarter. How in God's name are you doing that? He asked, examining the coins closely after my final performance. A professional magician never reveals his methods, I said, grinning back at him. But just this once, I'll reveal the secret. I proceeded to show him how it was done, which produced the inevitable post-trick letdown that frequently occurs when the curtain is pulled back and the process revealed. Well, that's bloody simple when you know how it's done, isn't it? He said, examining the coins in a completely different light. Fiendishly clever, but absolutely simple. He reached for his wallet. I'll take it. I waved away his money. This one's on the house, I said. He looked up from the coins in his hand, delighted. Brilliant, he said. He was still marveling at the trick and my generosity as I walked him to the door and closed it behind him. I sighed and shook my head as I walked through the shop, potentially the only sale of the day, and I had given it away for nothing. I returned to the back room with Harry, packaging up small orders in silence for a long time, each of us in our own little thought bubble. Once we finished all the orders for the screaming dice, we turned our attention to the card Presto, a device I had created for keeping a deck of cards flat. It's not a sexy item, but if you make your living doing card tricks, it can increase the lifespan of each deck of cards by a factor of five. I thought we might close out the afternoon in silence, but then Harry began to speak. The reason I didn't want to talk to the reporter was simple, Harry said without looking up at me. I'm still a skeptic through and through. That hasn't changed. But for the first time in my life, I really want it to be true. I'd like to believe that there is something on the other side. He looked up at me. His eyes were just a bit watery. I finally have a reason to want to believe all this nonsense, not to fight it, he said. But frankly, I don't have the strength to do either. He pushed the last of the orders across the work table toward me. I think I'm going to lie down for a bit, he said as he moved across the room and through the curtain. I heard him slowly climbing up the stairs, and then I heard him open the apartment door and move through his kitchen and living room. Finally, there was the sound of his bedroom door closing, and then all was quiet again. <laughs> ¶¶ 
And that's chapter seven. It was a good one. It's a sweet one. Uh, the relationship with Eli and Uncle Harry is always one of the best parts to write in this series. And Uncle Harry, one of my favorite characters to do in the series. Yes. Yeah. Before we wrap up what's becoming kind of a longish episode, uh, we want to thank David Regal for taking uh, the time to talk to us about creating and selling magic. You can always find David at www.davidregal. That's R-E-G-A-L, davidregal.com. And you can check out the show notes because there's some great links to David actually performing. If you are like John and had never seen him perform magic, you should click these links because he's great. Yes, he's terrific. We hope to have him back at some point Absolutely. at Sunday Night Magic. And that leads us to our next episode, uh, which will be our round one with Dick Cabot. I literally cannot wait. All right, me too. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time for Chapter 8 of The Ambitious Card. Please give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. They say that's very important to have other people help find them. And if you have a chance and are feeling favorably toward us, please leave a review. And then make sure you don't miss an episode, of course. Hit that subscribe button, will you? This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.